0: It's been a crazy week. How many of you are just so excited, you're so happy, you're so fired up because you had the best week of your life? Or how many of you are a little frustrated, anxious, and stressed out? How many of you, that's where you find yourself at? Well, I want you to know you made the best decision that you made all week. You made the decision to come to church today because out there, there's bad news. But in here, we got some good news out there, everybody's upset, but in here, we we are feeling pretty good and we may not know who our president is but we know who our king is and his name is Jesus that we live in a nation but we are citizens of another kingdom who has a rule and reign that he is our king of kings he is our lord of lords we love him we worship him we serve him and what's his name redemption Jesus. what's his name redemption Jesus. what's his name And so today we're going to talk about Jesus. If you have your Bibles, turn with me to Mark chapter 12, verse 13. We are continuing our study through the book of Mark that we are calling the simple gospel. If you're new to redemption, I want to let you know something, that at our church... We love the Bible. We love the Bible. We believe the Bible. We preach the Bible. We teach the Bible. We are unapologetically Bible folk. That's that's what we are. And, and we believe that God's word is the final rule and authority in the life of a believer, that it is true, that it is trustworthy, that it is timeless, and therefore it is always timely. And today, I have a very timely word for you. If you believe in the Bible, well, then what I'm about to tell you is going to make Complete sense. You're like, obviously, yes. That's just how God works. If you don't believe in the Bible, then what I'm going to tell you makes absolutely no sense. Which means you should believe in the Bible. 2020 has been kind of a year, hasn't it? Yes. It's kind of been a thing, right? At the beginning of the year, there was this um, this thing called um, the coronavirus. You ever heard of it? You ever heard of it? Made the news once or twice. It was kind of a, a, a thing. And during COVID, we actually had to shut down our church for about four months as we try to learn to navigate church online, how to be a faithful witness in the middle. Of of a global pandemic, and all the things that went along with that, and in the middle of COVID-19, it was the George Floyd murder, and all of the civil unrest, and all of the social injustice that came along with that, the riots, and the protesting, and everything else, and finally, once we feel like we've taken a collective breath, and breathed out, and we're like, yay, we can go to church again, three hurricanes... One, two, three hurricanes. So many hurricanes, they just started making up names for them. They're just like Delta, Beta, Zeta, right? And so we're like, okay, we'll just try this again. And so finally, we're able to reopen again, and we got started back in the book of Mark. See, before all of those things ever took place, we were studying the book of Mark. We actually started this sermon series, kid you not, March of 2018. Today is the 50th week of our sermon series through the book of Mark, okay? And we're only in Mark chapter 12. What's kind of funny is I woke up uh, yesterday morning, I had a notification on my phone, and it said, bing, you finish Mark tomorrow. Today was supposed to be the last sermon in Mark. Yeah, I'm supposed to be preaching Mark 16 and the Great Commission, but here we are, we're in Mark chapter 12. We still got like four more chapters to go, okay? And so you're like, why is he still talking? Why is he telling me all these things? Okay, because I am trying to make a point because what I'm about to tell you doesn't make any sense. Considering the week that we've had with the presidential election, with all of the virtual and all of the rage and outrage and debates and everything that's going on, who did you vote for, who did you pick, who did you select, who's nominated, oh, no, we got to recount, all those different things. In the midst of all of this, the sermon title for today as we continue our study in mark, I didn't pick this, I didn't choose this. I wasn't like, Brandon, we need to figure something out. We need to preach this really banger sermon today. We got to figure this out. What am I, I going to talk about today? And he was like, uh, you should talk about um, Jesus and politics. That's the sermon title for today. In Mark chapter 12, verse 13, we're going to see Jesus teach us about politics. How many of you think that's crazy? Isn't that crazy? I mean, we've been preaching through Mark about as fast as Nevada can count votes. That's how long we've been preaching through Mark, okay? I didn't make this up. I couldn't make this up because God set us up and God prepared us for a time and a moment such as this. You can ask anyone who's close to, to me, right? Like, I am the most forgetful person ever. Yeah. Right, I am the most forgetful person. I mean, like my daughter's birthday was yesterday, and I had to text my wife and ask her, what time was the party? Uh, because I had forgot, okay? Um, in the first service, I confused my daughter's names, and got their birthdays wrong when I was making that joke because I am so forgetful, right? I, this is one of the reasons that I'm that i I'm so glad that we don't lose our salvation because I would just lose it. I would just lay it down somewhere. I would just be like, thank you, Jesus, for saving me. Let me just set it next to my car keys and then I'd walk away and they'd be like, oh no, I'm lost again. If it wasn't for Jesus and my wife, I wouldn't be here. I really don't know. I don't know how that works um, because I am the most forgetful person. I am not very good at planning. the worst planner that there is. And I planned this sermon series out two years ago, and I could never have planned this. That my job as a pastor is just to preach God's word. That's actually one of our core values. That's why we talk about why we love the Bible so much, because my job as a pastor is just to preach the Bible. So for those of you who are new, here's how we study the Bible here. We pick a book. We study a book, chapter 1, and then make our way all the way through. So, Mark chapter 1, verse 1. Here we are, Mark chapter 12, verse 13. We're just preaching the word, and I never could have planned this, which means God had a plan. Which means God knew. Everything we're going through this year... Nobody could predict it. Nobody could have predicted what happened, right? I mean, the media couldn't predict it. The scientists couldn't predict it. The news couldn't predict it. Your teacher couldn't predict it. You couldn't predict it. The daycare that you send your school to, they couldn't predict it. The meteorologists who tried to figure out the hurricanes, they couldn't even predict those things. I mean, nobody could predict, not on the left, not on the right. Nobody could predict what we're going through or where we would be at. But I want you to know that God knew and that God has sovereignly put us in a position where on this day, when everybody's freaking out and probably the one thing that's on all of your minds is the one thing that I get the privilege to teach today. Jesus and politics. You excited? Yeah. You ready? Okay. It's gonna be fun. Grab your Bible, tear with you to Mark chapter 12, verse 13. And before you get started and before you find your place... Let me go ahead and put an airbag on today. Hey, just go ahead, put your seatbelt on, buckle up. Let me put an airbag on this. You will get offended. Yeah. (laughs) Everybody's already offended, so welcome to church. You're going to get offended. If you're looking for a reason to get offended, guess what? Here it is. (laughs) You're always going to find a reason, and I have a couple of reasons that I'm going to be able to offend you today. If you're on the left, hey, guess what? You're going to get offended today. If you're on the right, hey, guess what? You're going to get offended today. People say, we should believe in equality. I do. I believe in equal opportunity offense. And I'm going to equally offend all of you today. Because here's the problem. Here's the problem with the nation and the world that we live in. Everybody is divided left versus right when the church should be looking up. And that we shouldn't live according to the cultures of this world, but we should bring the kingdom of heaven down into our lives. And so if you're on the left, guess what? I'm going to offend you a little bit. If you're on the right... Yeah, you're going to get offended too. The only person who probably won't get offended is the one person who voted for Kanye. Other than that, if you voted for Kanye, you're good, right? Because Kanye knows Jesus is king. Amen. Kanye knows that. Other than that, everybody's getting offended today. So go ahead. Let's just be an adult about it. Um, I know because I've already offended one person. One person that I know, uh, we we were talking earlier this week, and she was losing her mind over the election, right? She was just freaking out, and she, she didn't understand why us Christians kept quoting Bible verses and saying, we're praying. I mean, she is not a believer and her political opinions are about as tolerant of my beliefs as a cat is to water. But I mean, we were just completely opposite and she couldn't understand why Christians would just keep quoting Bible verses. Like that doesn't do anything. Why do you just keep quoting Bible verses? How would you, why would you just keep quoting Bible verses and saying that you're praying? And the reason that she thinks that, and maybe some of you do, or maybe your friends or people that you know, they don't understand is because there is a fundamental Misunderstanding at the way Christians and non-Christians think. See, as Christians, we believe that we've been given what is called the mind of Christ, that we want to think God's thoughts after God's ways, that we've been renewed by our minds with the washing of the water of the word, that we are filled with the Holy Spirit with new desires, new passions, and new identities and new ways of thinking. This is how Christians think. It was a fundamental understanding at our worldview versus Her worldview. And what she didn't understand is what I think you need to grasp to be able to understand the rest of the message today is this. And it's the first thing on your notes. If you're taking notes, write this down, that for Christians, the Bible is the highest authority in our lives. That there are laws in this land, but there is the word of God that supersedes the laws of this land. That there are judges and there are courts and there's the Supreme Court, but there is a court of heaven that is above all of those things. And this is God's word and God's word is true. And as Christians, this is the final authority in our lives. And so whenever a Christian quotes a Bible verse, you know what they're doing? They're appealing to a higher authority. They're not appealing to emotions, they're not appealing to feelings, they're not appealing to precedent of any other law or legislation that is in the past. When a Christian quotes a Bible verse, those of you who are quoting Bible verses this week, what I want you to know, you're appealing to a higher authority that governs our lives. And then when we pray, it reveals our greatest allegiance. That we should be praying right now because our allegiance is not to a man, our allegiance is to God our allegiance is not to a political party. Our allegiance is to God. That the Bible is the final rule and authority. What it says goes, and this is how we base and build our lives, and then prayer reveals our allegiance. And so while everybody's freaking out, we're walking by faith. Come on. While everybody's complaining, we're people of prayer. While everybody's fighting and hurting one another, you know what we're doing? We're trying to get busy loving, blessing, helping, and serving one another because that's what God's people do. Our highest allegiance is to God himself and our greatest authority comes from God's word. Now, with that being said, grab your Bibles open them up to Mark chapter 12, verse 13, and I'm going to start off by praying. Heavenly Father, we ask that you would meet us here in this place. We ask that your lordship will be evident. Your kingdom will rule and reign. We ask for your wisdom to lead us and to guide us, and we ask for your word to challenge us and equip us and even convict us where we need to be convicted at today. Father, we ask that you'll just open up our understanding so we can begin to apply your word in our church and that we would be united in our our celebration of you. In the strong name of Jesus, amen. Let's go ahead and read Mark 12, 13. Here we go. And they, that's the religious leaders. Last week we saw as Jesus was in the temple, he got in a fight with the religious leaders, the Sanhedrin, the 70 ruling elders, chief priests, and the scribes. Jesus, he, he criticized them and turned the tables and got them a little confused. And so they're angry and they're upset. And then immediately after that, they send him a group of of Pharisees and Herodians. Circle that, highlight it, underline it. We're gonna talk a lot about the Pharisees and the Herodians. Why did they send the Pharisees to Jesus? To trap him. It was a trap in his talk and they came and they said to him, teacher, we know that you are true and you do not care about anyone's opinion for you are not swayed by appearances but you truly teach the way of God. Is it lawful to pay taxes to Caesar? That's the question. Should we pay them or not? But knowing their hypocrisy, Hypocrisy, he said to them, I want to pause right here. I want to point something out that you can be right and you can be wrong at the same time. Okay, listen to the Pharisees and the Herodians. Did what they say is right? Oh, absolutely. It's definitely right. I mean, listen to them. They came to him and they said, Teacher, is that true or false? Jesus was a teacher. We know that you are true and you do not care about other people's opinions. Check, 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 for you are not swayed by appearances. Check, but you truly teach the way of God. Check, they were right on all accounts, but they were wrong in their motives. So you can be right and you can be wrong. And I would submit to you that you need to begin thinking through this framework when it comes to 2020 politics, because there's a lot of people who think that you're right, but your heart is in the wrong place. And you can check all of the boxes, but if you don't have the right motives, then you're still gonna be wrong when you stand before the Lord. You can be right and you can be wrong at the very same time. Moving forward, let's go. But knowing their hypocrisy, he said to them, why do you put me to the... Test. Bring me a denarius and let me look at it. And they brought one and he said to them, whose likeness and inscription is on this? They said to him, Caesar, that's the Roman emperor of the day. Jesus said to them, then render unto Caesar the things that are Caesar's and give to God the things that are God's. And they marveled at him. Whenever I was a kid, growing up, we actually said the the Pledge of Allegiance. How many of you remember saying the Pledge of Allegiance every morning at school? You stand up, you put your hand over your heart, you say, I pledge allegiance to the flag of the United States of America. Okay, And then, for those of us who grew up in Texas, we also said the Texas Pledge. Every time I talk to somebody who's not from Texas, they're like, wait, you pledge allegiance to your own state? I said, this is the best nation in America. That's what Texas is. That's what Texas is. So every morning, I would say the Pledge of Allegiance to America. I would pledge allegiance to Texas. And just to make a little extra level of weird, I grew up in a Christian school, which means I also said the Pledge of Allegiance to the Christian flag. And so every single morning as a kid, I would stand up and I would declare my allegiance to three different institutions, to the nation, to the state, and to the church. Now, when I was a kid, that didn't seem like that big of a deal because, well, that was 30 years ago. Obviously, everybody who lived in America went to church, but then we don't live in that world anymore. We don't live in that nation anymore. We don't live in that culture anymore because the Pledge of Allegiance said one nation indivisible, Yeah, we're pretty divided now. That those three institutions are diametrically opposed at odds, and divided against one another. Because if you turn on the news here, what do we see? We see the states suing who? The federal government. We see the federal government working out laws against the states, and then the church is stuck in the middle between the two of them. And there's even federal laws going against churches, churches who are suing their states. We are literally living in a nation that is divided. 50, 50, split, right down the middle. We are living in a nation divided. How many of you feel this tension? How many of you feel what's going on? You feel anxious, you feel uncertain. Doesn't matter where you fall along the political divide, you're recognizing that something isn't right and something's going on, and there's a frustration that happens when it comes to politics. Anybody else there? Just me, just me, okay. Okay, well, I'm gonna preach to you then, okay? So over here, here's where we're at. Everybody else is a liar, me and you, we're (laughs) on (laughs) this. And so we're, we're talking, me and you. This is the same thing. That happened in the Bible. This is nothing new. What we're going on is nothing new. It seems like every four years people forget that we're humans and that we've been going through this for a very long time. This is the same thing that happens in Jesus' day as well. There's two groups of people. There's the Pharisees and the Herodians. And then there's Jesus. Now, let me ask you a question. Who is Jesus? He's the second member of the Trinity. He is very God of very God, humbly entering into human history. He comes on a rescue mission to seek and to save the lost. That's you, and that's me, and that's everybody who's ever lived. And Jesus, he comes and he reveals what is known as the kingdom of God. That he preaches and teaches, and he invites us into his greater kingdom. In fact, that's the first words out of Jesus' mouth in Mark. He says, "Repent." That's to turn from your sins. Trust in Him and believe to put your trust in the Lord, because the kingdom of God is at hand. He is announcing, inaugurating a new kingdom, a new way of living, a new world. God's rule and reign being made manifest all across this world. The kingdom of God has arrived, and it was inaugurated with the teachings of Jesus and then signs and wonders and miracles and healings. All of those things, they reveal, they prove the coming kingdom of God. And so Jesus, for three years, he's revealing God's kingdom until finally he makes it into Jerusalem. That's where we find ourselves at today. He is in the center of Jerusalem in the Holy this place on for their nation, and he's teaching in the temple, and all of a sudden, the religious leaders show up to confront him. Why? Because they don't like him. They oppose him because they've been having confrontations with Jesus ever since he first showed up in Jerusalem. I mean, on the first day he comes in, he's riding on a donkey, and they're singing, Hosanna, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, Hosanna. And they're waving palm branches, and they're taking off their cloaks, and they're laying him on the ground, and they're welcoming Jesus as their Messiah, And then after that, he goes into the temple, and he flips over the tables, he curses the fig tree, and then he tells a parable about judgment against the religious leaders. And all of this upsets and angers what is known as the Pharisees. Because for the Pharisees, they didn't just see this as just another man coming into town. They recognized this as being incredibly political. And here's the reason why. Psalm 118, Hosanna, Hosanna, is a messianic psalm about the coming king, the Messiah, who would be anointed by the Lord. See, in the Old Testament, when there was a king, they would actually anoint him. That's what Messiah means. It means the anointed one. And here comes Jesus, after being prophesied and predicted to be the Messiah, riding into town, and they're saying he is the rightful king. And all of a sudden, this is political now because now people are welcoming him as their leader. And so they get really angry and upset and they're very anxious about what's going to happen. There's a political charge that's taking place here. But for the Roman government, who is in opposition over the Jewish people, guess what? This was political for them too because now there's someone else who's claiming to be king other than Caesar, who is their king. So now when you read this, I want you to understand something, that the text and the context of what we're reading is loaded with political tension because there is someone in the middle that is claiming to be king and neither of them have authority over him. And so they send in two people. They send in the Pharisees and they send in the Rodians. Now, the Pharisees. The Pharisees, they're like the far right. All right? They are the religious right. They're the ones who want to make Jerusalem great again. That's, that's the Pharisees. <laughs> And, and And they're the the moral majority of the religious right. They're super pious, religious, and they like to enforce their beliefs on other people. that's the That's the Pharisees. But on the left, you have the Herodians. These are the liberal left, that they actually work for Rome. They would be very rich, very successful, very powerful. They would be government officials and leaders in civic and business and all these things because they work for Rome. They actually serve a man named Herod, who is the puppet king of the nation of Israel. Rome actually selected him. He was not Jewish, but they picked him to rule over the Jewish people to be able to keep a little bit of peace. They gave him what is called a nation state in the middle of it, but the Jewish people weren't actually free, and Herod was the quote-unquote king of of the Jews. And so you have the Herodians who work for Herod, who are very politically biased, and then you have the Pharisees who are the religious right, right wing, make Jerusalem great again people. And here's what we see is this the enemy of my enemy is my friend. Because the only thing and the only way you could bring these two people together is by their common hatred for Jesus. They both oppose Jesus. They both resist Jesus. They both want to see Jesus dead. See, look, Jesus brings everybody together. He'd bring them together in our love, or he could bring us together in our hatred. But people are still united, just in their hatred right now. And so they both come to Jesus... This would, be like, this would be like everyone, like Antifa and MAGA working together, okay? That's what's going on. I mean, imagine everybody wearing, like, all black and, like, a ski mask with a red hat. Like, that's, that's what's happening in this moment, okay? I have to make you laugh. If I don't, you'll get angry and you'll throw something at me, okay? <laughs> and I want you to know something. It's a conspiracy, They're actually colluding against Jesus, because this isn't the first time that this happened. If you go all the way back in your Bible to Mark chapter three, verse six, here's another example of where this all started. This is one of the reasons why I love preaching through books of the Bible, that if I were just to tell a story here or there, and we were just to talk about some of your favorite Sunday school verses, you would actually miss the entire context of what the scripture is teaching us, because you would actually not be able to understand Mark chapter 12 if you haven't first read Mark chapter three. So in Mark chapter three, here's what we see after Jesus performs a miracle, which infuriates the religious people, they began to plot with the Herodians. Look, here's what it says. If you're taking notes, fill in the blanks here. The Pharisees went out and immediately they began to hold a council with the Herodians against him on how to destroy him. So for Mark chapter 3, the Pharisees and the Herodians have been conspiring against Jesus, plotting his murder. You know what this is called? Collusion. Have you heard that word lately, collusion? I've heard that word. I feel like I've seen that word somewhere. People keep saying this word collusion, collusion, right? That's exactly what it is because this is a timeless book. This is a timely book, and that's exactly where we find ourselves here in America as well. They are conspiring against Jesus, and it all has to do with this thing called the tax. They ask Jesus, should we pay our taxes? Now, how many of you are really upset with Jesus' answer? You're like, no, we shouldn't pay our taxes. That would be a great answer, right? But that's not what he says. How many of you like paying taxes? There we go. There we go. One person and the rest of us. OK. The people don't really enjoy paying taxes. It's not like a fun thing. Like every April, you sit down, and you're like, hey, let's just get the whole family together and pay our taxes. No, you're not like, you're not like, yay, I love him. But although now there's a whole lot of people who are like, yeah, actually, I want to pay taxes. I want to pay more taxes. I want to pay my fair share. And I think you should pay your fair share too. And everybody who disagrees with them is moving to Texas, okay? Other than that, people don't really like paying taxes very much. But the Jewish people, they really didn't like it. Because this wasn't just any tax. This is what is known as the imperial poll tax, Okay, I know I'm getting really nerdy and down in the weeds right now, but you guys hang with me for just a moment. It's all going to make sense. You're smart. We can do this. The imperial poll tax was a tax that was placed upon Jewish people that nobody but them had to pay. Rome made them pay this imperial poll tax as a sign of the census because Rome was a wicked, godless, ruthless nation, and when they would invade other nations, they would overthrow them And then basically they would kind of destroy their culture and instill Roman culture in there. And as the Romans, if you were a child, they would either murder the children or bring them into slavery or sell them into sex slaves. The women would become prostitutes in the temple and the men would become soldiers or slaves as well. They were a ruthless, godless, wicked place that overthrew tons of countries and was one of the largest early civilizations known in the world. It was really, really dangerous and oppressive and violent but in the middle of Jerusalem, they actually worked out a deal with the Jewish people that if you were to pay us this poll tax, then we won't kill you. Just like whenever you were a kid and you went to school and there was a, that bully in class, and the bully came up to you and said, if you give me your lunch money, I'm not gonna beat you up, right? Did that ever happen to you? It happened to me. <laughs> oh. <laughs> no, I'm just kidding. <laughs> I made myself sad. It was kind of the same thing. And so the Jewish people, they resented this because they're paying taxes for living in their own homes. They're paying taxes for living in the promised land, the land that God had given to them. And they're paying taxes to a wicked, ruthless government that opposes them every single step of the way. And they have to pay these taxes in order for them to experience their own religious liberties. So it's all about this tax. And I want you to understand something that for them, they didn't see these as political issues. Okay, this is where this becomes so real for us. Is for the Jewish people, these were not political issues. These were theological issues that have political implications. Yeah. Write these down, because it's important for you to know. What we're seeing in our world today are not political issues. Every political issue is really a theological issue that has massive political implications for our lives. See, for the Pharisees or for the Jewish people, they saw this as very theological. This is the promised land. This is the land that God chose us. We are the chosen race. We are the chosen people. We are God's people. And now you're enforcing and opposing rules and regulations on us, then making us pay you. That is deeply theological for them. But for the Herodians, they saw it as political. I want you to understand something. No matter what you see in the news or what your friends tell you or what they post on social media, these are not just political issues. And that's where a lot of people have made so many grave mistakes when it comes to this election cycle is that we're thinking politically, but we're not thinking biblically and we're not thinking theologically. You need to think theologically about the choices that you make and the decisions that you choose because they have massive implications on how we live our lives. These are not political issues, but they are theological issues that are working themselves out in the political sphere. So. What, is, what do they do? They come to attack, they come to trap, they come to trick Jesus. So here's what I'm gonna do. I'm gonna read it to you. Now that we have a little bit of better understanding, I'm gonna read it to you, and I just want you to see how the text begins to come alive now that you understand all those things. Here's what it says. And they, that's the Pharisees and the Sadducees, came to him, and here's what they say. They say, teacher. Now, do they really believe that? Do they really believe that Jesus is a teacher? No, because he's been teaching for three years and they won't listen to him. But here in this moment, they cozy up to Jesus. Hey, Jesus, teacher, let me ask you a question. You can hear the smugness and flattery in their voice. We know that you are true and that you do not care about anyone else's opinion for you are not swayed by appearances, but you truly teach the way of God. See, they're buttering them up. (laughs) They're flattering him. They're, they're trying to get on his good side. They're appealing to his ego, but Jesus doesn't have an ego. So there's nothing you can appeal to, but they're trying to do their best. My, my daughter does this, right? My daughter, she'll be four uh, next week. And my daughter comes up to me and she says, daddy, 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 I love you. And I say, what do you want? She said, nothing. What are you trying to hide? nothing, you stay over here, I'm going here, right, that's what, that's what my daughter does, and you know what, I don't fall for it, because I'm smarter than her, <laughs> and Jesus here, he doesn't fall for their trick, do you know why, because he's smarter than them, and he's smarter than all of us. Look what Jesus says here. Um, they're trying to trick him, but they're not sincere. They say, is it lawful to pay taxes to Caesar or not? Should we pay him, or should we not? But knowing the hypocrisy, they're fakes, they're pretending, wearing a mask, playing a part, it's a sham, he said to them, why do you put me to the test? Bring me a denarius. Hey, let me look at it. And then he brought one to them. This is why I think this is so funny, because the religious leaders, they resent the denarius. They don't like the denarius. They don't want to use the denarius, And then Jesus' like, hey do you got a denarius? They're like, yeah, actually I do. Here we go. And they had like, oh, busted in your own hypocrisy, right? They're saying, oh, it's wrong to use denarius. Jesus, do you have one? No, do you? Yeah, here we go. And I'm like, ah, busted. It's because Jesus is smart. Anyway, reading the Bible. Um, what was Jesus' response here? And he said to them, whose likeness and inscription is on this? And they said to him, it's Caesar's. Then Jesus said to them, render or give back to Caesar the things that are Caesar's and to God the things that are God's and they marveled at him. We actually have a picture of the denarius right up here. This is what all the hubbub and fuss was all about. Can we throw that picture up there? There we go. So this is the denarius that they would be talking about. It was about a day's wage. And on one side, it has Caesar's face. And on the other side, it has a woman. But what's so interesting about the denarius is actually the inscription that's written around it. It says, uh, Caesar Tiberius, son of Augustus the divine. What that means is this. Caesar is the son of God. See, Caesar would declare himself to be God, Caesar's son, Tiberius, he actually was the son of God, which means he was of the same essence, the same substance, he was of the same stuff as God. So everyone there was part of the the cult that actually worshiped the emperor as God. And then on the other side, it has a a picture of a woman and it says Pontifus Maximus, which means the great high priest. So I want you to understand this from a Jewish perspective. You have a a government that is making you worship their leader as God, and then also a government that is saying they are the only way to atone for your sins. And then they're forcing you to use this money. See, for a Jewish person, this is deeply theological. You know why? Because using it would be a violation of the first two commandments, The first commandment was this, thou shalt not have any other God before you. And the second commandment is, thou shalt not have any other graven images. And so every time Rome comes up to them, they have to use what? A false God and a graven image. So for them, this is not political. This is deeply theological and it goes against their deeply held beliefs. Now, for them... The question was, should we pay our taxes or not? Should we use the denarius or not? Should we pay the Roman taxes or not? They were worrying about taxes. But let's just bring it into the 20th century. What are some theological issues that have been politicized? How about this? Abortion. They started with taxes. Today, we're fighting over Abortion. Abortion is not a political issue. No matter how much people want to make it a political issue, it is a theological issue that has political implications. Abortion is not a right. Abortion is not a choice. Abortion is murder. Just say it what it is. Abortion is murder. To take the life of another based on your convenience and choice. And don't give me the rape or incest because that's less than 1% of abortions. Most abortions happen just because people don't want the kid. Come on. That's called murder. It's not a political issue. That's theological because as Christians, we believe that life happens at conception and that we are made in God's image. And that before we were born, He knew us in my mother's inwardmost parts. John the Baptist even leaped in his mother's womb by being in the presence of Jesus. There is not a political issue. These are theological for us as Christians. This is what we believe, and. Another one would be gay marriage or homosexuality or transgender or LGBTQA. All of those things, those are theological issues for us. Because God designed and God defined marriage. All the way back to Genesis chapter one, it says that, that God made them male and female, and that a man will leave his mother and father, cling to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. We have no precedent throughout any of the scriptures of homosexuality being accepted in any sense of form. And so when they come and ask Jesus, what is the definition of marriage? Here's what Jesus tells them early in Mark, that a man will leave his mother and father, cling to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. Do not separate what God has brought together. Marriage is God-designed, marriage is God-defined, and so it doesn't matter what law gets passed, you cannot redefine what God designed. These are theological issues that we have and that we believe in, and these are playing themselves out in political ways. So for an example, Colorado just passed a law that would have prohibited 22 weeks for abortion. They said, nope, we want full term abortion up until the third trimester. So up to the third trimester, a woman could have an abortion in Colorado. Oregon legalized, or decriminalized rather, crystal meth and cocaine and other drugs. But luckily, Nevada actually passed a law, a 60/40 split from what I believe, that set a precedent to where now the government can't come in and tell churches that they must do weddings, gay weddings, or anything otherwise. So there's legal precedent protection for churches, from the government in that sense. But other than that, let me just explain something. If you're looking and seeing all of the things that are going on in the world in solely political lenses, you're missing the points. These are not political issues. These are theological issues that work themselves out in political ways. And many people right now, they're thinking, but you can't tell me what to do. You have no right to tell me what to do. You need to check your beliefs at the box. You can't have your beliefs. We live in, in, in another country, there's other people who live here. Yeah, I know that. But as Christians, I cannot check my beliefs at the ballot box. You know why? Because you're not checking yours. Come on. They say, but you can't legislate morality. Listen, that's what morality and legislation is. Every single piece of legislation is morality. That you're saying, this is what I believe is right. And then you go vote. You know what you're doing? You're voting for what you believe in. And then you're asking Christians to not vote for what they believe in. And maybe you can do that because you don't have any beliefs. You don't believe in God. You don't believe in the Bible. You don't believe in sin. You don't believe in hell. You don't believe in the Holy Spirit. You don't believe any of those things. And so it's easy for you to check your beliefs at the door. But we can't do that. You say, "But it's, it's not your rights, it's not your rights. No, it's all of our rights as Americans. You get your vote, they get their vote. That's, how, that's what makes America great, is that we live in a society where we're able to be able to cast our votes. We're able to be able to say, "This is what I want. This is what I like. This is what I think. This is what I believe." And yeah, so everybody's legislating morality because every piece of legislation is morality. And then you would say, oh, but there's a separation of church and state. The church can't tell me what I need to do. There's a separation of church and state. Actually, no, that's not what that means. Okay, for for three things. Number one, the term separation of church and state is nowhere in any of the founding fathers' documents. It's not in the Constitution. It's not in the Declaration of Independence. It's not in the Bill of Rights. The separation of church and state comes from a letter from Thomas Jefferson written to the Danbury Baptists in the beginning of our nation. And And here's the reason why. He was writing to them, encouraging the Danbury Baptist Church that the government will not infringe upon your ability to worship. That the government will not infringe upon your ability to worship how you choose to worship. See, separation of church and state was never intended to to, to protect the government from the church. It was always intended to protect the church from the government. And the other thing that we see, not only is separation of of church and state, but another thing that we, we need to consider is that every time you try to prevent someone else from casting their beliefs and you don't believe that those beliefs should be welcomed in civilized society and you're telling people how to vote and check your beliefs at the door, what you actually become is the very own definition of intolerance. You say, but you're intolerant. You're intolerant. You're intolerant. Why? Because you believe something that I believe and you don't agree with me. And so I'm going to cancel you. You're intolerant. I don't know about you, but that feels pretty intolerant to me. (laughs) See, the word tolerance used to mean that we can live next door to one another and we don't have to kill each other. <laughs> that we can disagree and not see to eye to eye, but you're welcome at my kid's birthday party. I'm having a barbecue. Hey, let's be friends. That's what tolerance used to mean. It used to mean that we endured one another. But now, today, tolerance has a new definition. Tolerance doesn't mean enduring with one another. Tolerance means accepting and celebrating what another person says. And if you don't accept me and tolerate me, then I want nothing to do with you. You know what that's called? That's called intolerance. That's religious bigotry. Gotcha. And so you think, we have a separation of church and state. And then other people, I love this when they say, I have the freedom from religion. That's not what it is again. Sorry, that's not what it is. It's the freedom of religion. Freedom of. There's a big difference. One word makes a really big difference, okay? Like if I were to say, I have freedom from ice cream. Like, ah, get it away from me. I have freedom from ice cream. Totally different than freedom of ice cream. I can have chocolate. I can have vanilla. I can have strawberry. I can have, I'm hungry already. I could have Rocky Road, right? I have the freedom of ice cream, and I have the freedom of religion, which means I can pick and choose whatever religion that I want to be a part of. If I want to be a Christian, if I want to be Muslim, if I want to be Mormon, if I want to be Sikh, if I want to be Jehovah's Witness, if I want to be a Scientologist, I don't know why people would want that one, but that's their right to choose that one. And you have the right to not go. That's what makes America so special, is that you have the right to believe what you believe and you have the right to believe what you believe and then when we all live next door to one another, we call that America. And the moment you try to stop that, you become the very thing that you hate. So all of you Herodians, hypocrites, sit down. Now that I've made all of the Herodians mad, where are my Pharisees coming for you? <laughs> Racism, prejudice, locking kids in cages, separating them from their families, and all the nasty things that you've posted on Facebook for the last three and a half years is wrong. It's wicked, it's wrong, and that we live in a society where there are just laws on the book, but when a black man gets killed, everybody overlooks it. That is wrong. The level of conspiracy and of lies, the the pride and the arrogance that is within the Pharisee party is wrong. Where pride is present, God is distant. The nationalism, the elitism, and all the things that you've posted, you might not be able to see what's deleted from the Twitter account, but God keeps a record of everybody's accounts. Wrong. And where I'm struggling at right now is this, is that I'm seeing a church that looks more like Pharisees and Herodians than looks like Jesus. When I turn on the TV, when I get on Facebook, I'm seeing a bunch of believers who are canceling one another who are speaking ill on one another. Not only is the nation divided, just get online. Church is divided, where people are like, I can't believe you would vote for this person. I can't believe you would vote for this person. And others are like, did Kanye win or what? I don't know. (laughs) I think that's why Nevada's being so slow counting their votes, they just don't wanna let us know. How could you vote for them? How could you vote for them? How could you support this person? How could you support this person? And then we go to war against one another. And that's what's making this so difficult for so many people. It's because everybody's worried about the left and everybody's worried about the right. And that's what's bringing everybody down. Instead of looking left to right, as God's people, we need to be looking up. What does God's word say? Who is God? What does God want? What is God's way? What is God's will? That we're not going to be forced to choose between the Herodians or the Pharisees. No, we're going to turn off the news. We're going to open up our Bible, which is our greatest allegiance, and we're going to spend some time in prayer because that's who we are. And so we need to stop looking like Pharisees and Herodians, and we need to recapture the answer of Jesus, which makes us Christians. So here's what Jesus does. I want you to know it's a trap, and Jesus doesn't give into the trap. Are you with me or are you against me? Are you for me or are you against me? And Jesus basically says, I'm for me. Because there's three sides to the truth. Did you know that? There's three sides to the truth. Everybody thinks they have the truth. Republicans think, I have the truth. Democrats think, I have the truth. Jesus says, I am the way, the truth, the life. No one comes but by me. There's three sides to the truth. There's your side, there's their side, and then there's his side. What is the truth? There's a story in the Old Testament with Joshua as Joshua is going into war against the Philistines, I believe. The angel of the Lord shows up before him. And Joshua, he says, whose side are you on? You know what the angel of the Lord says? I'm on my side. <laughs> Whose side are you on? See, for us, we want to make people pick a side. Jesus says, there's only one side, and that's my side. So I'm not neither for you or for you. I want to know, are you for me? You don't have to make a choice. Everybody wants you to feel it and make a choice. Right now, you feel this tension in your life. Well, if I say, "I voted for them," then oh, nobody's going to like me, but if I vote for him, I might throw up. you're like, "I don't know what I'm going to do." And we get stuck in the middle of this choice, and it feels like everybody has to make a choice. You've got to make a choice, and if you don't make the right choice, then we're all going to be angry at you. But you know, it's Jesus here, he doesn't make a choice either because this is a trap, this is a test on Jesus. On one hand, if Jesus says to the Herodians, no, we will not pay our tax, you know what they're gonna to say to him? You're a rebel and we're gonna kill you. And they could have come in and they could have arrested and murdered Jesus on the spot right there for inciting a rebellion against Rome. But on the other hand, if Jesus would have said, nope, go ahead and just pay your taxes, well, then guess what would have happened? The Pharisees could accuse him as being a false prophet for leading a nation of Israel to disobey the first two commandments, which is guilty of death as well. So Jesus on the horns of a dilemma. He's damned if he does and damned if he don't. He's right there in the middle. They could kill him both ways. And so what does Jesus do? Jesus outsmarts all of them. Here's what he says. He says, why do you put me to the test? Look down at your Bibles, verse 15. He says, why do you put me to the test? Bring me a denarius. What's so fascinating is this word test right there. The only other time in the gospel of Mark, this word test is used is in Mark chapter one, when Jesus is in the wilderness being tempted by Satan. This is a demonic trap. That underneath the Herodians and the Pharisees, there is a demonic power that is influencing them. This is why elsewhere Paul says in the book of Romans or the book of Ephesians rather that we wrestle not against flesh and blood, but against powers, principalities, and rulers in heavenly places. In the Old Testament, there was demonic presence like the Prince of Persia that would influence governments and government leaders and politics, and they would bring rise to nations and falls to nations, and it would hinder people's prayers and oppose God's people. There is a demonic spirit of politics, and I believe that it has itself here in America. That's the reason why the left hates the right because you're being demonically influenced to fight with one another. What is the works of Satan? To lie, steal, kill, and destroy. What are you doing to each other? You're lying, you're stealing, you're killing, and you're destroying one another. There is an accuser, his name is Satan. He's accusing the church. He doesn't need your help. There is a demonic spirit that is at work being empowered in the politics. It was in their day and it's the same thing in our day. And it comes and it flatters them. It inspires, it motivates them. This is civic religion at its worst. And this is the same thing that we're encountering in our nation as well. It's nothing more than an old trick from Satan to be able to trap you and to fool you into falling asleep. It's called civic religion. For our, our nation, our founding fathers. Everybody say, oh, we're a Christian nation. Well, actually, I don't know if you knew this or not, our founding fathers were called deists. That means that they weren't Christians. They believed God lives somewhere far over there, and then we're here in the middle of our life, the product of the Enlightenment period. Thomas Jefferson, he did not believe in the Bible. In fact, Thomas Jefferson took a razor, cut out all of the miracles and teachings of Jesus, and was left with what was known as the philosophy of Jesus Christ. Uh, John Madison was not a Christian as well. Most of the founding fathers were not believers or Christians. They were products of enlightenment, period. And then as you get a little bit further into the early 1900s, you have presidents like Eisenhower said, our nation is built on a moral framework of God, and I don't care what God that is. Because they know that if we use God language, then all the good God-conscious people like you and me are going to dump whatever meaning we want into it. I used to do this when I was a kid. When I was a kid, my parents, they wouldn't let me listen to non-Christian music, so I would find songs that mentioned the name God, and I would say, look, it says God. It's a Christian song, isn't it? And so that's how I got to listen to Nirvana. (laughs) (laughs) The government does the same thing to us, but we are clueless on this, and people prey on our religious, spiritual conscience just to be able to get our votes. This has been happening for a long time long time. This happened with Barack Obama. When Obama would pray, he went and visited Planned Parenthood, the leading nation's abortion provider. He prays, God bless you, at the end of his prayer for Planned Parenthood. Missed me on that one. Hillary Clinton says that her strong Methodist upbringing is what gave her the morals that she has. Joe Biden says it's the, it's the Beatitudes in the Sermon on the Mount, which inspires his foreign policy. Meanwhile, when he was serving as the vice president under Barack Obama, they killed more people in the Middle East with drone strikes than any other president. And then you have people on the rights who like to placate to religion to be able to play on your emotions. This is what we see from President Donald Trump, which I I, I love. I pray for him every single day. As all leaders, we should, pre- as all Christians, we should be praying for our leaders. People say, do you hate President Trump? I say, no. So how can you not hate him? Because I pray for him and it's impossible for you to hate somebody you pray for. I'm so grateful for his leadership. He's done so many amazing things over the last four years for our nation. And if Biden is our president and it works itself out in the courts, then I'll begin praying for him. But in the meantime, I'm praying for Donald Trump because at the time until January 21st, and whatever happens, he's still our president. So we need to pray for him. But here's, here's what he said. He said, nobody has done more for Christians, evangelicals, and frankly, religion than I have. I don't know. That whole thing about the Protestant Reformation and Martin Luther, kind of a big deal. Like, it's the whole reason we're not Catholic, okay? Yeah, big deal. There's this guy a couple years ago. His name was Billy Graham. You ever heard of him? He would lead massive revivals and crusades all across the world, millions of people. Kind of a big deal. Not to outpunt your coverage, but I think, um, I think you're exaggerating. And then there's Vice President Mike Pence. I'm just showing these so that way you can begin to think biblically and critically about the nation that we live in. Here's what Mike Pence actually said at the Republican National Convention. He says this. He says, let us run the race marked out for us. Let us fix our eyes on old glory and all that she represents. And then he says, the author and perfecter of our faith is freedom. Do you know what that is? Do you know what this? That's literally quoting Hebrews. He literally quoted the Bible, removed the name of Jesus, and replaced it with the American flag. Do you know what that's called? It's called idolatry. You gotta think biblically, and not just believe anything that somebody else says. This is why I told you in our series, I say this all the time, you better know your Bible because I can guarantee you Satan knows it better. And then, if we don't check ourselves, it ends up with posts like this that I saw on Facebook yesterday where it says, show that video, show that post. Satan also thought he had won until three days later. Okay? You are this close to heresy when you say that. Comparing a presidential election to the resurrection of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. This close. This close. You're way too invested in this. I'm very worried for many people that government has become their God and politics has become their religion and that we have idolized politicians, which means we demonize one another. Very concerned about the church and our nation. Very concerned because civic religion is a demonic spirit that is dividing the church. And so here's what Jesus does. I'm still preaching the Bible. Here's what Jesus does. He says, bring the denarius and I want you to bring it and take it to me. And they brought him and they said this, whose likeness and inscription is on this? And they said, Caesar's. And Jesus said to them, then give to Caesar what belongs to Caesar and give to God the things that are God. And they, they marveled at it. Whose image is on the coin? What's the question? Whose image is on the coin? It's Caesar's. Here's what Jesus is saying. Do you want to vote? Go ahead, vote. In fact, we have an obligation to the government as Christians to honor, to respect, and to participate in civics and politics and government. That's our right as Americans, but it's also a responsibility for us as Christians. So go ahead, participate in the government. Go ahead, vote. Go ahead, pay your taxes. Go ahead, do the things that you feel. Run for office. Do those things. That's all great and good, but here's what Jesus says. Give to God what belongs to God. The question is, whose face is on the coin? It's Caesar's. Whose image is on the coin? It's Caesar's. But then Jesus turns the tables and he says this. Whose image is on Caesar? It's God's. Genesis one twenty seven says, So God created man in his own image. The coin may bear Caesar's image. But Caesar bears God's image, which means there is a king over the kings. There is a lord over lords. There is a kingdom over the nations. And at the name of this king, every knee will bow. Every tongue will confess because Jesus is king. And on that day, do you know where Caesar will be? On his knees before the king of kings. Do you know where you will be? On your knees before the king of kings. And there will be a long list of presidents and queens and politicians and people. And we'll all be equal because there is Jesus who is no respecter of persons. And so you have to make a decision with your life. Give to God what's his. What belongs to God everything Caesar gets your vote but Jesus gets your life a person may get your vote but God alone requires your allegiance to him and if you've been putting more hope in the government than you have in God you need to repent because government will fail you every single time This is why everybody's freaking out and angry and upset and rioting and taking to Facebook and arguing and losing relationship with others. Because you're finding your hope in the wrong place. I'm gonna say something. I'm gonna press really hard on you, but I love you. Some of you are more worried about your nation going to hell than your neighbor. And you've spent the last presidential cycle tearing down relationships with people you should have been leading to Christ. And I think it's gonna be a very... Difficult road for you to rebuild some of those relationships that you've lost along the way on both sides of the argument. We're not left, we're not right. We belong to him. And in this church, there will be unity. And here's the reason why. Because a nation divided, last note, a nation divided needs a united church. See, I didn't know that we would be preaching this here now I thought I was going to preach a good message on taxes. Pay your taxes. Let me give you ten reasons you should pay your taxes. <laughs> but God had other plans. That's the one joke y'all laugh at. This whole message, you're like, uh, I don't know if I should laugh or not. Ten ways to pay taxes. <laughs> That's funny, Pastor Byron. A nation divided. We'll edit this out. A nation divided. <laughs> Needs a church that is united. I know many of you, you cast your vote for a man, but I need you to cast your vote for unity. Cast your vote for unity in this church. Cast your vote for unity in your small group or your serve team. Cast your vote for unity. Say, I'm not gonna let a little thing like politics prevent me from loving my brothers and sisters. I will be united around this. We don't have to agree on everything because the Herodians and the Pharisees, they could agree on how much they hated Jesus. Why can't we agree on how much we love him? A nation divided needs a united church. There's still work for us to do, guys. There's still lives. There's still souls. There's still people that we need to reach. And even though I didn't get to preach the Great Commission today, I'm gonna preach a little bit of the Great Commission. Go make some disciples baptize them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. And Jesus says, I am with you always, even until the end of the age. He was with them 2,000 years ago when they were living in Rome under Nero and Caesar and Tiberius. And you know what? He's living with us today under Obama, under Trump, under Biden, and whatever may come next. He never left us. He never forsake us. He's still with us. Are you with him? Come on. A nation divided needs a church that's united. And this is... This is This is the line for us as a church. We will not go left. We will not go right. We'll keep moving forward while we follow after him. Well, thanks again for tuning in with us here at Redemption Church. If this message was helpful to you in any way, leave a review, like, comment, or share with your friends to help others experience life change through Jesus.